Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next edition of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. Today's topic is going to be uh, just a single discussion on something that's become very interesting to me lately, and it's directly reliance on one of the only law enforcement-related Supreme Court decisions that we have seen in the 2023 year. So the topic of today's uh, discussion is going to be very simple. What is a threat? Yeah, I said threat. In the world of law enforcement, uh, perception of threat and threats are a lot. There are dealt with a lot in the criminal application. There is a lot of laws across the country that deal with threats, people giving threats, and people receiving threats. And and so today's discussion, based on the recent Supreme Court decision on Counterman versus Colorado, is going to be a discussion about what is a threat because. Hopefully what you'll get from this podcast is that I'm a little concerned. I'm concerned because what the Supreme Court resulted in their decision is not clear in the application of how to prove it. See, what I want you to focus on today, if you are in the job of law enforcement and as we go through this, I want you to focus on the fact that in your cases where somebody threatens somebody else, you have a duty to prove certain things. Uh, we call those elements of the crime. And and one thing is clear to all of you is that every state has different crimes and different elements of crimes. But I can guarantee you one thing. I can guarantee you that there is a crime for threatening uh, and that there is different areas of threatening in other different crimes like disorderly conduct or or incitement to a riot or even areas of threatening in nature. Now, the reason why we're talking about this today is because social media and DM and interaction with each other online has increased the ability of threats and threat perception. As you know, we go back before social media, and for those of us that have been around there, a threat was me saying something to you that you would interpret as a threat. And that's part of the hot issue on the table today. As the world has developed in the area of social media and communication, and now the fact that you can you can send messages to people by multiple means, whether it's a text message, uh, uh, an Instagram message, a DM, you know, i.e., a DM, um, an email, uh, you know, leave a voicemail message. Uh, there's a lot of ways that people can be hide behind their technology. And I think this has opened up a new world of concern in the interpretation of what is a threat. And what you're going to see from these court cases in the process I'm going to talk about, first, I'm going to be honest with you. You might have to listen to this podcast a few times because it's confusing. And one of the reasons why I'm talking about it is because it's confusing. And I'm really concerned for the fact that you as officers have to, uh, you have to determine criminal application in the area of a threat. And with the Supreme Court's latest uh, decision on this that came out on June 27, 2023, um, we think that it, it, it will send a ripple effect through the legal landscaping and that will offer critical guidance on First Amendment interpretation. And we're going to have to define what a true threat is. So our purpose today 
is to break down some of the court's decisions and rationale in hopes that we can assist law enforcement grasp the ruling, uh, the, the Supreme Court's implications in this ruling. And it's not going to be easy, right? So I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make it something? And, I, and I've been teaching this class uh, over the past couple of weeks uh, in, out in Missoula, Montana on First Amendment interpretation. And as I'm, as I'm teaching the class, um, it's just becoming more and more obvious that there are going to be challenges to interpreting. So, so let's start out with something simple. And I like to start simple because it's easier that way. And when I start simple, we're going to start is we're going to take the word threat. So the, the quote, the title of this mindset podcast is what is a threat? Well, I'm going to start with the dictionary because I mean, that's a good place to start, right? We're going to interpret words. And so uh, the dictionary, uh, the definition of a threat is a statement of an intention to inflict pain, injury, damage, or other hostile action on someone in retribution for something done or not done. Now, it's interesting to me because there is going to be uh, a few discussion points here in the the discussion points. And I'm going to say it a couple of times, so hopefully I don't confuse you along the way. And I do have to give a shout out to uh, to uh, Adriana in my office for a tremendous amount of legal research that she had done in preparation of our First Amendment Summit, where we first brought this issue up, waiting for the ruling from the Supreme Court, which we thought was going to come in May, because the, org- the oral argument on this case was in was April 19th, and it didn't turn out that the Supreme Court didn't release this decision until June 27th. So along the way, um, she kept very... Uh, up to date on the interpretation and the issues. And I think has done a good job of giving me the framework to help you explain or help me explain and you to understand the issue. So let's start with some very basic concepts. In, in Counterman versus Colorado, the Supreme Court decision that we're talking about here, there's issues. So as we work our way around, I want, I'm going to keep reminding of you of the issue. The issue that went to the Supreme Court was very simple. Well, I guess it's not that simple, but it's very direct. Whether to establish that a statement is a, quote, true threat, end quote, unprotected by the First Amendment, the government must show that the speaker subjectively knew or intended the threatening nature of the statement, or whether it's enough to show that an objective, reasonable person would regard the statement as a threat of violence. So, before I dive down this rabbit hole, and it is a rabbit hole, let's let's put it on the table here so you understand. The court has to decide whether which way which way the legal system is going to interpret this quote true threat. And the, they have two options. The option is first that the government may show that the speaker subjectively knew or intended the threatening nature of the statement, or Option number two, whether it's enough to show that an objective, reasonable person standard would regard the statement as a threat of violence. So let's break it down even a little bit further based on my interpretation. And again, take that for what it is. But one, do we have to prove intent when dealing with a true threat? Or can we use the fact that a reasonable person hearing the threat would regard the statement as a threat. So let's look at it this way. If I say to you, 
hey, I want to kill you, right? I want to kill you, right? So we have you know, Kara's control on the board today. And if I look at Kara and say, Kara, I want to kill you. Well, the question is, is that a criminal act? Now, for whatever the reason, hopefully this is not true, Kara can say, holy crap, I think Eric really wants to kill me because I heard him say, I want to kill you. And I guess that means that she believes that I can and want to kill her. So she calls the police because she wants, she because she's in fear of the fact that my statement could truly cause her harm. Well, the, the police come and do the investigation and they knock on my door and say, hey, Eric, yeah, did you threaten Kara? No, I didn't do that. I didn't threaten Kara. Well, you told her that you wanted to kill her. And I said, well, yeah, well, I was just, I was a little upset at her, right? I, I didn't, I didn't, I was just kidding. Right? I didn't, I didn't, I'm, come on, I'm not going to kill Kara. I need Kara. Kara's a great person. Why would I kill her? That's the issue on the table. And the reason why I'm doing this podcast is think about how much of your daily interaction in law enforcement world is about threatening. I mean, I got to, I got to, listen, I'm not out on patrol. You all are out on patrol. And so I got to assume that you're still doing threatening cases. And there's probably a lot more than usual with the fact that, that haters and trolls can hang out behind their computers and threaten people without any real issues whatsoever. So uh, I started teaching this a long time ago and it really started in 2017 in part of our, our part of our first amendment training having to do with crowd control or what we would now call public order. And that is what is a threat? You know, let's, let's in the first amendment world, can we take action against somebody who is inciting a threat or inciting a riot? I mean, let's just pause for a second. This is a hot button topic, right? You do watch the news. So this is a hot topic and, and it really, really jumped off the page, uh, in, in, on March 6, 2017. And I'm going to quote two articles that you can find on our learning center resources page. Uh, in this first article, all you got to do is search Perez. Um, this first article is titled, uh, Supreme court first amendment considerations should require states to prove intent to sustain threat convictions. So this is the first time this issue came to a head. So um, on March 6, 2017, Justice Sonia Sotomayor issued an interesting concurring opinion in a case called Perez versus Florida. In her opinion, the justices stated that if the First Amendment concerns would have been raised in certiorari, writ of certiorari, the Supreme Court would have clarified the burden of the proof that the state's should have to sustain threat conviction. So what she's saying here, just for you to ever understand it, is that this was a case that went to the Supreme Court. It did not make it through writ of certiorari. So that means that the court did not take it. And the reason the court did not take it is because this issue was not clearly articulated in the lower court of appeals decision. And so, as you know, and when something goes to the Supreme Court, like I've told you before, when it goes to the Supreme Court, it's got to be clearly articulated to the Supreme Court in a question format. But Justice Sotomayor thought that it was so important that she decided to write a very brief per curiam decision on this. And that decision opened up the discussion points of threats. So I know you all like facts. So let's jump in 
in the facts of this case. And that means I would have to introduce you to Robert Perez. Mr. Perez and some of his friends were drinking a mixture of vodka and grapefruit juice at the beach. They got a they have a they have a concoction that they like to take to the beach with them. And they call this concoction a Molly cocktail, M-O-L-L-Y cocktail, right? Well, they went to the beach and they drank all their Molly cocktail. And so they got to get some more. And so the group decided to go to a nearby liquor store to buy more ingredients for the drinks. At the liquor store, while trying to purchase more vodka and grapefruit juice, Perez called the mixture a Molly cocktail. Like, we need more we need more vodka and grapefruit juice for our Molly cocktails. And as you can imagine, they were they probably not fully intoxicated, but well on their way. So they were probably a little aggressive in their application. An employee who was working at the package store overheard their conversation and believed that Mr. Perez was referencing what he believed to be an incinerary device called a Molotov cocktail, right? We all know what that is. And that's alcohol or gasoline put into a bottle that when with a wick that's you light the wick and when you throw the bottle the bottle explodes therefore making the the flammable liquid accessible to the flame and it it, it is an incendiary device the employee asked mr perez if he was going to burn up anything and perez intoxicated uh made a joke about it so perez was inebriated and continued to banter telling the employee that he had a Molotov cocktail and he could blow the whole place up. Well, uh, this is the first time he goes to the liquor store. Gets Now, they take the vodka, grapefruit juice, go back to the beach, drink a second round of Molly cocktail, and they run out a second time, and now they go back to the liquor store. You know how this is going to go, right? I mean, you know what's going to happen here. So now they're more intoxicated and inebriated. You pick what you want to call it. And as they returned to the store, uh, the, the employee again asked, hey, are you making off Molotov cocktails? Are you going to blow something up? And Perez's intoxicated response was, we're going to blow up the whole world. And so they called the police and the police responded and they arrested Mr. Perez for violating a Florida statute that makes it a felony to threaten to throw, project, place or discharge any destructive device with intent to do bodily harm to any person or with intent to do damage to any property of any person. Okay. Mr. Perez is arrested. He goes to trial and he, the trial, uh, during the trial, the trial court instructs the jury that they could return a guilty verdict against Mr. Perez for threatening. If the state proves two elements, number one, the threat, itself was a threat and two that Perez intended to make the stress the threat very important focus very important because that's where the jury instruction said well not just not just that he makes the threat but that you intended that Perez intended to make the threat I'm going to push pause for a second because I want to highlight this one issue I need you to start thinking through this podcast about how are you going to prove intent? What evidence, what probable cause, what facts and circumstances do you need to use in your documentation of your criminal charges to prove intent? And we'll get back to that. The instruction permitted the jury to convict Perez based on what he stated alone. 
irrespective of whether his words represented a joke, the ramblings of an intoxicated individual, or a credible threat. The jury found Perez guilty, and because he qualified as a habitual offender, he was sentenced to 15 years and one day in prison. And, and so Mr. Perez uh, challenged the instruction in his petition for certiorari. Perez challenged the instruction primarily on the ground that it contravenes the traditional rule that criminal statutes be interpreted to require proof of intent. Okay, as I said, we're still talking about the Perez case from March 6, 2017. The Supreme Court denied writ of, jury, writ of certiorari without issuing an opinion. Justice Sotomayor issued an opinion concurring with the decision, but she did say, however, that, hey, the jury instruction in Perez's conviction raises serious First Amendment concerns that would have been worthy of review by the Supreme Court. However, because the appellate court did not raise the issue in the lower court, the Supreme Court did not have the authority or jurisdiction. Justice Sotomayor went on to articulate a few things. She explained that to sustain a threat conviction, states must prove more than the mere utterance of threatening words. Some level of intent is required. Additionally, it's not enough that a reasonable person might have understood the words as a threat. A jury must find that the speaker actually intended to convey a threat. Now, this is, this is not a Supreme Court holding, but it's advice from the Supreme Court that, hey, you got to do a little bit more work on your threatening cases. She concluded this. Instead of being instructed to weigh this evidence to determine whether Perez actually intended to convey a threat, or even whether a reasonable person would have construed Perez's words as a threat, the jury was directed to convict solely on the basis of what Mr. Perez said. Her conclusion in reference in this case was this. In an appropriate case, the First Amendment does not permit such a shortcut. So, starting in 2017, I started teaching this in this issue and in dealing with it, in dealing with incitement to uh, in overall First Amendment training in our First Amendment summit, and but also more specifically in our, uh, in our training specifically related to public order response or, or crowd control response. So let's go to Counterman versus Colorado. And I, and I appreciate the fact that uh, Adriana has l clearly laid this out for us in dealing with going all the way back to the lower courts. And I'm going to kind of use this as a template to deal with these issues as we move forward. So, so let's start with the facts of this case. Right? So we're in Counterman versus Colorado. And as I said, this is a decision from uh, June 27, 2023 and issued a verdict, uh, and, and the verdict is a little bit of concerning for us. And this case involves a Colorado man. His name is Billy Raymond Counterman, and, and he is convicted of stalking, stalking a songwriter uh, names of, by the name of Cole Whalen, Cole's Whalen after sending her hundreds of direct messages on, on Facebook. Now, let's get a little bit into some of the facts, because I know you guys love your facts, right? So, so the issue here is, uh, the, the, this appeared over a period of time. And in fact, uh, it was really interpreted that by the time that the police investigated this, that he had sent approximately, uh, more than a thousand 
social media based messages to the songwriter. Um, and, and, uh, you know, Waylon in the initial phases over a period of two years, you know, she testified that she found the messages to be creepy, you know, creepy with in quotes, especially because they indicated that he was surveilling her. Um, but she never responded and she would continue to repeatedly try to block him on the social media, mostly on Facebook. But he continued to create new accounts in order to send her messages. And like I said, over a period of two years, she he sent her more than uh, more than a thousand messages. And and so it got a little bit concerning for her. Um, What type of messages? Well, I dove in a little bit because I wanted to see, you know, messages that included things like, was that you in the white Jeep? Which is obviously concerning to her because she drove a white Jeep. And how would he know that? Uh, messages that said, seems like I'm being talked about more than I'm being talked to. This isn't healthy. Uh, messages like, you're not being good for human relations. Die. Don't need you. End quote. And at one point, uh, he asked her for a hot date at Walmart. And another time expressed anger and frustration at her lack of responsiveness. You know, what was the result? Well, the result was that 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 in this in that Cole's Whalen, she became so upset that she took preventive measures such as hiring extra security and even canceling some of her performances. Ultimately, she filed suit and, and Counterman was found guilty and, and convicted. Uh, she filed a, a, a criminal case against him and he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. Um, but over the course of this, um, his lawyers argued and get ready for this because this is where the things are going to really impact your brain. The lawyers argued that the conviction violated Mr. Counterman's free speech rights. Oh, wow. That's a whole nother rabbit hole, right? So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole except to say that we know that in dealing with free speech, somewhere in your training over the over the years, we've talked about fighting words. We've talked about uh, uh, threats and we've talked about, you know, what do you what is can be precluded under free speech? And and, you know, somewhere along your life, you've heard the saying, don't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Right. And there's a reason for that. And that's because you don't have a, a First Amendment right to cause that that harm. Uh, and the Supreme Court over the years um, has identified nine categories that are not protected by the First Amendment. So obviously uh, we are very concerned about this and um, in, in our First Amendment summit and our DLG training. And so we've kept a, a very, very important look at this. Well, let, let's go down to the details. So Mr. Counterman was arrested. And he was charged uh, and, and he was charged in Colorado under one count of stalking, a credible threat. It's and for those of you in the area, 18-3602, subsection one, subsection B. Um, he was he was charged with one count of harassment, uh, 16-9-111, uh, subsection one, subsection E, if you wanted to take a look at that, and one count of stalking uh, under the aspects of serious emotional distress, uh, section 16-3-6021, uh, subsection C. So these three charges, uh, uh, were two of them were dismissed 
So one count of stalking, a credible threat was dismissed before trial. One count of harassment was dismissed on day one of the trial, which left one count of stalking in its application uh, in the area. So what does this say? Well, so now we go to trial in, in Colorado. I can never say the name of the county correctly, Arapaho, I think. Um, so the statute uh, for which he was tried on says this. Anyone who repeatedly follows, approaches, contracts, places under surveillance, or makes any form of communication with another person in a manner that could cause a reasonable person to suffer serious emotional distress and does because that person does cause that person to suffer serious emotional distress. Okay, so at the trial level, the prosecutor must show that a reasonable person would have taken the statements as a threat. And that's a lesser threshold, right? Basically, what they're saying is in the, in the state of Colorado, the threshold was I said words. Would a reasonable person listening to those words determine that they are a threat? Um, it, is, it is clear at the time of this trial that prosecutors were not required to prove that the defendant intended to threaten an individual. As I said, the jury found Counterman guilty of, of stalking under serious emotional stress and sentenced him. He appeals, and he appeals to the Court of Appeals for Colorado, and part of his appeal is that his conviction under this section uh, violated his federal and Colorado constitutional rights to freedom of speech. His argument in this appeal was for the statement to be considered a true threat, prosecutors needed to prove his intent to threaten or carry out the act of violence, which he contended the prosecutors failed to demonstrate in this case. The, the, the appellate court for Colorado ruled in their holding that the defendant's as-applied constitutional challenge is stalking and to it is, I'm sorry, let me say it again, the defendant's as-applied constitutional challenge to his stalking conviction failed. So they upheld the law in this place. And they they talked about some of the, the true issues in this. One of the things that they talked about is a true threat. Um, and they said, uh, the court considered the following, his social messages, such as telling the victim to die in view, in viewing these specific messages in the totality of all the facts implied here, these messages demonstrated a disregard for her life, which had a subjective effect of a threat leading the victim to fear for her safety. That's the, that's the appellate court's analysis here in talking about a few other things that might be beneficial for you to make sure you keep in mind when doing threatening cases, uh, the length of time that countermen continued to send messages from 2014 to 2016, uh, creating new accounts when he was blocked and there was no previous interaction between the two. And then the other thing was messages that indicated that he had seen her in the public, driving her white Jeep and surveilling her, obviously concerning to the victim. The, the court said, this enhances the credibility of his threats, and this adds to the threat implied by the other messages listed above. The court did at the appellate level focus on one thing, importance of considering the context. And I think this is very, very important for you in criminal investigations. The context when examining whether a statement is a threat. Freedom of speech doesn't vary 
when a new and different medium for communication appears. And that's from a court decision called Brown versus and Merchants Association. But such medium of expression presents its own special set of First Amendment problems to which must be examined in light of circumstances interwoven with the speech and issue. Now, Counterman argued the risk of accidentally committing a speech crime could inhibit the free exchange of ideas. That's his argument, saying, listen, you know, you're going to you're starting to impose a crime on my speech. He cited former justices writings and emphasized that the need for mens rea in First Amendment context to protect honest speakers from unintended liability. Pay attention to that. Emphasizing the need for mens rea in First Amendment context to protect honest speakers from unintended liability. So the cert goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And as I said, bringing it in full circle, the Supreme Court talked about the issue, whether, again, whether established, whether to establish that a statement is a true threat unprotected by the First Amendment, the government must, one, show that the speaker subjectively knew or intended the threatening nature of the statement, or two, whether it's enough to show that an objective, reasonable person would regard the statement as a threat of violence. Oral argument on this case was held on, on April 19th, 2023, and we got a decision on June 27, 2023. The, again, the only police-related decision that we have had so far uh, this year uh, out of the Supreme Court. So there's the, the, the two key issues that were remanded before the Supreme Court, and let's talk about what they say. In our opinion, here at DLG, in a landmark decision, the Supreme Court ruled that for a true threat cases, the state must prove that the defendant had some level of subjective understanding of their statement's threatening nature. That's, I think that is a, is a very high burden for you all, that you must prove that the guy or the gal who says the statement has some level of subjective understanding of their statement's threatening nature. And I'm going to put it back to you to say, what does that look like, right? Well, let's continue on in what the court said here. In the context of true threats, the court identified recklessness as the appropriate mens rea, which is interesting. The recklessness, as you know, recklessness is a higher standard than negligence in your in your mens rea, in your laws of arrest training, you know that. And what the court said is the recklessness standard adopted in the court's defamation decisions requires the state to prove that the person's consciously disregarded a substantial an unjustifiable risk that their conduct would harm another. What's the problem? Boy, that's a lot of fancy words, right? It, very limited interpretation for you all working these cases on the street in, in the application of working these street. The state must prove that the person consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that their conduct would harm another. Now, if you're sitting here listening to me and saying, Larry, what does that mean? Guess what? I don't know. I'm trying my best to interpret it, but here's what I've come up with. The court reiterated that the First Amendment allows for content restrictions in speech on speech in certain limited areas, including true threats. That's one of the nine exceptions. The court said 
quote, serious expressions that convey a speaker's intent to commit unlawful violence, end quote. While the existence of a threat depends on more than the statement's conveyed implications to the recipient rather than the author's mental statement, I'm sorry, mental state, the court affirmed that the First Amendment might necessitate a subjective mental state requirement to shield some true threats in uh, to shield some true threats from liability. In terms of the counterman's case, the court found that the state prosecuted him based solely on an objective standard, the interpretation or the reasonable response to hearing the threats, and did not demonstrate any awareness on counterman's part of the threatening character of his statements, thereby violating the First Amendment. And when this case dropped, a lot of us went, at least those of us that deal with this, were in trouble. So let's look at life after counterman. What do we know now as we sit here a few months later? We know this. The, the We're splitting the country in half. So what I thought was interesting is uh, uh, based on some great research done by Adriana in looking at the country as a whole because of how this affects the country, it's, you know, there's two standards, the objective standard, which is the reasonable person interpretation of the speaker's words, or the subjective standard, which the Supreme Court said is going to be the standard, which requires proof that the speaker intended the statement as a threat. Um, it's, it's actually easier to start with the subjective standard because it currently across the country, there are only two circuits that currently follow this standard, which are the ninth and the 10th circuits in the Federal Court of Appeals and that the states Kansas, Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Rhode Island already require proof that the speaker intended the statement as a threat. There are multiple circuits, uh, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 11th circuits, and the states of Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Connecticut, California, Hawaii, Iowa, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, North Dakota, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Washington, and Washington, D.C., that all follow the objective standards. So as far as I'm concerned, if, you know, my law school actually paid off, that that's no longer viable. The Supreme Court issued a decision that threw out the reasonable person standard. Now, before I wrap this up, I want to do a little bit of interpretation for you. And I, because I need, I think you need more. I know I need more. So I think you need more. So I did some research, and I want to start with this. In looking at some research on what is a threat, in getting getting right down to the application, this is what I found out. A threat is a direct act of coercion, wherein the action is proposed to elicit a negative or fearful response. Threats are communicated, verbal or written, attempts to inflict harm, fear, or some form of loss on another individual. Threats are considered to be a crime in the majority of the jurisdictions across the country. However, a threat without a palpable, immediate, and direct threat of aggression is often held separate from a statement that would elicit fear or a violent action. The presence of an immediate or direct threat of aggression is often viewed as the equivalent to the physical act itself. The United States defines and classifies threats based on how they are delivered and the likelihood that they will be acted upon. So remember that. Right? For instance, federal law criminalizes specific true threats 
that are transmitted via the U.S. mail system or an interstate commerce. Additionally, any threat made to the governing authority or government officials will be viewed as a criminal action. Other than those described above, the legal implications attached to a threat are up for statewide interpretation. Some states, for example, criminalize cyberbullying, uh, which is an action transmitted through a computer or cell phone that elicits a harmful action. The punishments and classifications of a threat are dependent on a few distinct variables. Well, here we go. Write these down. Number one, was the threat made with an overt and aggressive action? Two, was the threat followed up by a physical assault? Three, was the threat made to a governing body? Four, was the threat delivered with disrupting our nation's homeland security? And number five, was the threat verbal or violent in nature? Threats made concerning an individual's life or intention to disrupt the sanctity of society are viewed throughout the country as felonious actions and may carry a prison sentence. You know, the key part here is what are we finding as the interpretation? Uh, one of them, here, here's one of the interpretations I found online. The court's move would worry those working to combat stalking in an age of social media where the internet has expanded the number of violent threats, enabling activities that include online harassment and intimidation. This, this article said they fear that the court standard could raise the bar for government when, when trying to prove a series of messages amounted to a true threat unprotected by the First Amendment. So fancy interpretation, uh, fancy word, simple interpretation means you as police officers have to do more work, right? You, you to prove this case. I found an interview on NPR um, that the interview was done by a professor at the University of Miami, who is the president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Her name is Mary Ann Franks. And she was, as part of this interview, there was a question that she answered what I thought was very interesting. Um, the question was, do you think this ruling signals a pattern to you that the court's thinking more broadly about free speech and the First Amendment? And Attorney Franks responded by saying this, it seems pretty clear that this court is determined to provide First Amendment protections to the worst of the worst, not just in the sense that we have to protect bad speech to protect good speech, but to completely discount the fact that the freedom of speech of victims of stalking is being compromised. She said the court is striking a blow for free speech of the people who want to terrorize and to stalk and to abuse. And she said, especially women and other minorities are other vulnerable groups. And got to be honest with you, that's where a majority of my concern comes in. And if you read my article, which I hope you will share this podcast in this article with other members of your department, everybody could use to start thinking about this. But if you read the article, which you can find on our DLG Learning Center, you would, you would find this conclusion. It is our interpretation that Counterman versus Colorado verdict underscores the delicate balance between protecting citizens' right to free speech and guarding individuals against threatening and harmful communication. 
we think that there is a there that the balance is now going to be way off. The nuance understanding provided by this ruling will undoubtedly impact future cases that hinge on the interpretation of the First Amendment, particularly regarding true threats. So as I wrap this up, I leave you with a few things to think about. First, please look at your statutes directly related to any crimes involving threats, both online and not online, DM messages to in-person. Focus on the fact that intent in its application is now the standard. And the other part to think all of you should start talking about is what does it take to prove intent? You know, one part of a threatening act, and, and, and we were having a conversation here in the office about this, preparing for this podcast was, you know, listen, if I say, hey, I'm going to kill Kara, Kara, I'm not going to kill you, I promise, right? Uh, but if I say, I'm going to, I'm Kara, I want you to die, right? That's a statement. If Kara ends up dead tomorrow, well, that actually occurred. So now the duty of the of law enforcement is to prove the causal connection, right? And but in a lot of times with threatening cases, the end result does not occur, and so you're left with just, hey, I made these statements, and what I truly can't don't like about the world we're living in now is today is people can say, oh, you know what, lighting up Dagala is just a joke. I was just joking. I didn't really want to do that. So for you all in law enforcement. It's going to come down in the aspect of you're going to have to spend a little more time in your case reports, in your investigations to prove intent, to clarify as much evidentiary support as you can for intent and make sure that you're going to document intent in the application of the context of the form of speech, the manner of the form on speech, and, you know, get as much uh, facts and circumstances as you can to surround that speech to show intent and prove intent. Listen, I thank you all for checking in again. And I know this one, I think you guys are like, well, that was a little heavy day. I'm sure it was heavy, but it's important. And that's why I'm putting it out. Um, for those of you um, that are already members of our, of our Path the Guardian training and you like this type of training, you should be getting this training every week. You can register for and and on our DLG Learning Center and look for Path of the Guardian training. Uh, you, you know, this, this type of important training is out there for you on a daily basis. Also, don't forget about our app. Uh, a lot of good case law is easily provided to you in the Dago Law Group app. And you can get that in both um, in the Apple in the Apple store or in the Android store. You know, our goal here is to continue to provide you as much information as we can. And before I wrap up, I just want to pause for a second and say thank you. Um, thanks for getting back to work. Thanks for focusing on, on your job. Thanks for, uh, on behalf of my family and the family of the members here at Day Law Group, thanks for protecting us. Uh, and thanks for doing a job that we all believe is admirable and we are here to support you for it. And we hope that you believe that too. So if for nothing else, I just want to say thank you. And I'll add, as I end, I'll add in the same way as I always do. Uh, help those who need your help. Protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, 
webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.